Welcome to the teaching ministry at Carthus Creek Community Church. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you here, and I'm glad that you're here. And to those who are going to be watching online through the weeks ahead, uh, a warm welcome to you as well. We started off a series last week uh, called Touching Heaven and Changing Earth. You know, what do you do? What happens uh, when heaven touches earth and, and things, things change, things become a little bit less normal? I want to start off this morning just by asking you a really simple question. What would you be willing to do to turn around a desperate situation? What would you be willing to do to avert a catastrophe. Maybe it's a marriage. Maybe it's a marriage that's really quite literally on its last legs. Maybe it's a prodigal son or a prodigal daughter who you're just longing to come home. Maybe it's a failing business that you just think about all night long and it just robs you of your sleep. Maybe it's a strained relationship. Maybe it's a health crisis. What would you be willing to do to turn around a desperate situation? Well, whatever the issue, whatever the circumstances, you do whatever it takes. You simply do whatever it takes. You pull out all the stops. You call in all of your favors. You talk to all your friends and to all your supporters and you simply do whatever it takes to turn it around. Today we're going to study an episode in the Old Testament where God has to do whatever it takes to turn a desperate situation around. And as we'll see, it's a desperate situation in the life of his people in nation Israel at that time, but it has so many parallels to our situation today in our country, in our time, and in our own church. I want us to look at the epic encounter between the prophet Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel that we find in 1 Kings chapter 18, and we'll be particularly looking at verses 16 through to 39. And so if you have a Bible, it might take you a minute to get there, but uh, turn to 1 Kings chapter 16, 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 16 through to 39, and it'll, most of the verses will be up here on the screen. But before I get into that, we, we really need to understand background. You see, we're not going through the whole book of 1 Kings, and, and so it's kind of unfair for us to jump right into the middle of a book without understanding the background, without having some context, and, and, and just understanding exactly what's going on here. So let me just do that really quickly, just to give you a bit of a thumbnail sketch for what's happening so that we can understand exactly what's going on in this passage Let me start with a a brief history. When God took his people out of Egypt, when he delivered them from slavery, and in the Exodus event, as he led them through Moses and then through Joshua into the promised land, God gave them a land that was to be their own land, and eventually the people moved into that land, and they settled in that land. And as they began to look at all of the nations around about them, the people of God said, you know what, all of the other nations have kings. We'd love to have our own king. Now, that was never God's intention. That was never what God wanted. God wanted this unique, special relationship between him and his people. 
But God relented and he said, okay, because you want a king, I will give you a king. And so the kings of nation Israel started. First king was King Saul, and then we had King David, and then King Solomon. And something really unfortunate and tragic happened at the end of the reign of King Solomon, and that was that the nation Israel was divided. Ten tribes went to the northern part of the land that they had been given, and they were, became known as Israel. And two tribes went to the southern part, and they became known as Judah. And Rehoboam and Jeroboam were the first two kings. And in the setting that we have here, we're talking about the northern ten tribes. Elijah is a prophet to the northern tribes, not to the southern tribes. So he is speaking to this ten tribes of the north who call themselves Israel. And at the time of uh, Elijah's prophecy, Ahab is the seventh king to reign in the northern tribes. Ahab is a wicked king. He's not a good king. He has led the people astray. His father made a, made a real, what he thought, a strategic move, but really it was, um, it was a terrible move for the nation. In order to gain an alliance with the Phoenicians, his father married Ahab to a woman called Jezebel, who was quite a character, if you've read scripture. This was expressly prohibited and forbidden in the law of God. And Jezebel was quite the package. <laughs> She came with a lot of stuff. She was a religious fanatic. And she worshipped the foreign gods of the Phoenicians. And particularly, she was a Baal worshipper. But she was a Baal worshipper who was really serious about her faith. And when she married Ahab and she moved into Israel, she brought with her tons and tons of priests. 450 of them came along with her. And she systematically set out to replace the God of the scriptures, the God of Abraham and the God of Moses with Baal worship in nation Israel. And she systematically set out to kill all of the prophets of God in the land. What do we know about this Baal cult? What do we know about this Baal God that she worships? Well, we know from history and from other writings that, that the Baal cult worshipped Baal who was essentially a fertility god. There were, there were a number of different tracks of that fertility god, but, but he was known as a god of storm and a god of rain, which becomes very, very important in understanding what's going on at Carmel and understanding what's going on in Elijah's whole ministry. The followers of Baal would worship Baal and would call out to Baal and would see Baal as a god who would provide rain and storms so that the crops would grow, and they would worship Baal and they would give thanks back to Baal as the seasons came and the seasons went and the crops would grow and, and things materially got really good for the people. Essentially, Baal is a god of prosperity and a god of materialism. So what's the immediate context as we approach now 1 Kings chapter 18? Well, Elijah has prophesied under God that there will be no rain in Israel for three and a half years. And so we have, with the signal of that prophecy, the beginning of the conflict between Elijah and Ahab and Jezebel and between God and Baal. Because Baal is the God of rain. He's the one that provides rain, who gives rain, so that the crops will grow, so that the people can sell them, so that the people can line their pockets, so the people can have material prosperity. And Elijah prophesies that for three and a half years the seasons will come and the seasons will go and there will be no rain on the land and there isn't any rain. And the land goes into a terrible recession. 
And because of this, Ahab and Jezebel send out envoys all over nation Israel, and they begin to look for this troubler of Israel, this one who has brought trouble on Israel, this prophet Elijah, because they feel that if they can kill him, that will remove this curse from the land. And once again, prosperity will be returned as the people worship Baal. And so that's the immediate context that we go into 1 Kings chapter 18 and this tremendous epic encounter that happens on top of Mount Carmel. And so I want to go through the story of this. If you're familiar with it, it's so rich and it's so uh, bountiful, this story, that I believe you'll, you'll get some new stuff out of it. If this is the first time that you're ever hearing about Elijah and Mount Carmel, then just sit back and enjoy it as we kind of walk through this story together. It's a story that has an unbelievable script. It's a story that's full of drama, There's tension in this story. There's activity in this story. There's tons of action if you love action. And for guys like me, there's some great humor in it too. So let me walk you through some sections of the scripture, and I want to make some comments on each one of them so we just really get the robust understanding of it. And then after I do that, I want to say, so what? (laughs) So, So what? What does it mean for us today? So there's this epic encounter on Mount Carmel. What does that mean for for me and my family living here in 2010? So we'll do that right after. So let's jump right into the story with that kind of a setting. And so we start in verse 16. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. And when when, when he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So here Elijah calls out Ahab and Jezebel. He said, look, we've had the famine now, or we've had the drought, sorry, for three and a half years. This thing, this confrontation has been started, but Elijah says, look, God's had enough of you. We're going to settle this thing once and for all. So he says, I'm calling you out. The confrontation's going to happen, and it's about Elijah, and it's about Ahab, and it's about Jezebel, but it's about God, and it's about Baal, and it's about God and his people. Why did... Elijah chose Mount Carmel. You know, what's so significant in Mount Carmel? Well, it's, it's a great choice of a location. See, Mount Carmel, th- this mountain range, is, is just on the coast. There's the Mediterranean Sea, and then just on the coast, as you come off the sea, you hit this mountainous range, and Mount Carmel is there. Now, it's not a big, jagged peak. It's actually a fairly flat mountain. It's not snow-capped. It's actually really quite fertile. And it's the center of the coastal region for worship of Baal. People used to worship God there. They used to worship Jehovah there too. But as we'll see in a minute, that ceased a long time ago. And this is a center of worship for Baal. And the reason that it's a center of worship for Baal is as, as the clouds would form, as the evaporation would happen over the Mediterranean Sea, and, and the clouds would move from west to east and come in over Israel... When they hit the high range mountains, they would turn into rain. And so the people under Jezebel would say that this is attributed 
to Baal and to our prayers and our devotion and our worship to Baal. And so what Elijah is doing here is he is not running. He stopped running. It's time now for confrontation. And Elijah brings the confrontation right to the doorstep of Baal, right to the doorstep of Ahab and Jezebel. See, our God is not a God who runs. God is not a God who flees from people. God doesn't have to be afraid of anybody. And when the time of God's visitation comes, when the time of God's confrontation comes, God brings it to us. So let's keep going as the story begins to build now and as we start to get some momentum in this story in verses 20 through to 24. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and he said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let them choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but don't set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire, he is God. And then all the people said, what you say is good. So here the confrontation is set up. We're on Mount Carmel. Elijah is there by himself, and there's 450 prophets of, of Baal. Now, it doesn't mention the other 400 prophets of Asher. We're, we're a little unclear if they're actually there at the scene. But all of the people of Israel have been assembled because the king has sent out this call. There's a big event going to happen. And the odds are slightly stacked. And Elijah comes to them and he says to them, how long will you waver between two opinions? It's a really interesting phrase that he uses there. Um, it's a really great translation in the NIV. Um, but in the Hebrew, it's kind of it's difficult to understand. It's a picture, it's a picture phrase. And, and let me kind of give it to you this way. There's two other ways that we can understand it. What he could be saying is, how long will you hop between two boughs of a tree? You see, when, 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 when the boughs of a tree split... When you're at the start of the split, it's easy to hop from one to the other, right? But as the boughs of the tree go out and as the tree expands, it gets more and more difficult to hop between the boughs. And so that's what he's saying to him. The other idea that we could use here is a fork in the road. How long will you have one foot on one side of the road and one foot on the other side of the road? At the start of the fork, it's easy. But as the road forks out, it gets more and more difficult. And Elijah is saying to his people, look, how long will you waver between two opinions? How long will you hop between two boughs of the tree? How long will you try to straddle both sides of the road? How long will you sit on the fence, people? If God is God, follow him. Get fully devoted to him. If Baal is God, follow him. But you can't serve two. Wow, somebody else really important said that. Who was that? Shakespeare? No, it was Jesus. That's right. Somebody really important. He says you can't serve two gods. You can't serve two masters. 
You've got to make a decision. You've got to decide. And what Jesus said is exactly what Elijah is saying here. You either need to serve God or you need to serve mammon. You need to serve God or you need to serve money. Elijah is saying here you either need to serve God or you need to serve materialism who is represented by Baal. And throughout this section of scripture, there are so many sad, sad verses. Here, Elijah is talking to the people of God. He's talking to the community of faith. And he says to them, how long are you going to waver, people of God? Community of faith, how long are you going to try and straddle the fence? And we see in verses 21 and 24, look what it says. If Baal is God, follow him. If the Lord is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Are you kidding me? The people said nothing. There's there's no response. These are the people, remember, who understand where they come from. These are the people who understand all of the great stories about Father Abraham and about Moses and the deliverance and the exodus and about Joshua and all the victories that God did. And these are the people that the prophet is saying, choose, choose God or choose Baal. And they go, I don't know. Crazy, eh? And then a little bit later on in verse 24, after he sets up the scene and he says, look, this is what's about to go down here. The the people say, uh, I love their response in verse 24, what you say is good. (laughs) Right? In, in, In the Dave Adams translation, it's like, oh, that's a pretty cool proposal. Yeah, let's wait and see what happens. Yeah, you know what? Why don't you do your thing, Elijah, and we'll let Baal do his thing, and we'll choose. Are you joking me? See, God always gives us a chance to respond. And the people say nothing. Well, now things are really going to start heating up, literally. We're going to start really amping it up. And so look at verses 25 through to 29. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there's so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. And they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Oh, Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he's is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and he needs to be awakened. So they shouted louder and they slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice But there was no response, no one answered, no one paid attention. Do you hear the sadness of dead religion in these verses? These prophets of Baal, 450 prophets of Baal, oh, they're devout, make no mistake about it. They're willing to cut themselves and to mutilate themselves so that they'll be showing their devotion and their honor to Baal. 
And they're dancing around the altar. As, that's their custom. That was the way they did things. They've prepared this bowl and they've set it all up. And they begin to prophesy. They literally begin to have ecstatic utterances. They're just getting so hyped up and this thing's coming to a fever pitch. And good old Elijah, he's just kind of sitting back. And, and I love it. He just starts taunting them. Oh yeah, like, you know, maybe Baal's traveling. <laughs> you know, like, I just love it. Elijah, there's 450 of them and there's just you, my friend. And by the way, Ahab and Jezebel are not on your side and neither are the people because they haven't responded. But Elijah has a quiet confidence in his God. I remember years ago, I had a chance to visit India and went to old Delhi, the old part, the ancient part of Delhi. And in the ancient part of Delhi is the third largest mosque in the world. And I happened to be there on a Friday when the noon call to prayer went out. And I stood on the steps of this magnificent, enormous building while ten to 15,000 men came in at noontime to pray and to listen to a message from the Oman. I stayed outside for the hour-long service, and then the gates, these giant ancient gates flung open, and ten to 15,000 men came pouring and streaming out, throwing small coins, giving alms to the poor and the, to the, the destitute people who were waiting there. And as they poured out, it broke my heart. So devout so religious and yet so lost because the God of this age has blinded their eyes. And it says in these verses on Mount Carmel in this episode, some of the most haunting and terrible verses. No one answered. No one cared. Nobody was listening. They're so devout that they're actually starting to mutilate themselves and they're crying out and no one's even listening. The futility and the emptiness of dead religion. I believe that God began to change my heart back then for Middle Eastern people, for people who are Muslims and I had another episode at the Sikh Golden Temple where I just changed my whole heart over Sikh people. Well, Elijah's about had enough on this, and so we move on in our verses. Starting in verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, look, come here to me. And they came to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was in ruins. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two siahs of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. And then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. And the water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. There's so many incredible pieces of information in these verses. 
The altar of the Lord is in ruins. The people of God had stopped worshiping the true and the living God, and they'd replaced God with an altar to Baal. And so Elijah has to start, first of all, just by repairing what was broken down, by restoring the altar of the Lord's, which was in absolute ruins. And he takes 12 stones. Remember, he's in the north with the 10 tribes that have split. But he takes 12 stones representing God's plan and God's unity for all of nation Israel. And he repairs this altar, and he prepares it in accordance with the prescribed worship methodology of his day, in accordance with what God, with what God had commanded through Moses for the people to do. And to prove what God is about to do, that it's no fluke or no trickery or no magic going on, he, takes these, he asks them to take four large jars and fill them with water and pour them over the offering and do it a second time and do it a third time. If you're here last week, a threefold repetition in Hebrew, remember? And not only that, it's tremendously symbolic too. Four jars, three times, one for each tribe of Israel. And the altar is soaked, the wood is soaked, the sacrifice is soaked, and the, it's about 15 liter trench is absolutely filled with water. Now remember, the people of God are just sitting back and they're watching. They're just taking it all in. They're not saying anything. They're not doing anything. And then in verses 36 to 39, we hit the, the climax of our story. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and he prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Let me just hit the pause button a second. You notice that that's not the normal prayer, right? Normally, it's O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Joseph. See, he's trying to make a point to them that God, the God of their ancestors, is supposed to be their God, Israel's God. So, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all of these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. And when the people saw this, they fell prostrate and they cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The consuming fire from heaven falls on the sacrifice at the righteous prayer of Elijah, one lone individual. And God rains down his heavenly fire on this situation. And make no mistake about it, these people, I think, would suddenly remember all of their teaching and all of their upbringing throughout all of the Old Testament. And it should prick our memories this morning when the fire of God falls. It is so symbolic of the presence and the coming power of the Lord. Remember, it was the fire of God that Moses saw in the burning bush. It was the same situation. The fire of God fell in Leviticus chapter 9 when they prepared the very first sacrifice in accordance with the law that God had given. It was the fire of heaven that fell in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 when Solomon dedicated the temple to the glory of God. And it was tongues of fire that appeared 
on the crowd that was gathered in the upper room when God poured out his Holy Spirit on all men and all women and all flesh for the empowerment of ministry. Oh, make no mistake what is going on here, my friends. And after all of this, the people finally respond. After all that they've seen, they finally fall down in their faces and they say, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Well, you need to read on to see what happens because things really get going crazy after this. We just don't have the time for that. So what do we learn from this instance where heaven touches earth? Let me just share very quickly some thoughts on that. First thing that I see is that God is still turning the hearts of his people back to himself. Verse 37 is a key verse in all of this section of scripture. In Elijah's prayer, he says, answer me, O Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. We need to understand the reality of that. That the same God who rained down fire in this situation, that he did it so that the hearts of his people would be turned back to him, so that the community of faith would return to him and would give up their worship of materialism and of Baal and would turn to the living and true God and to serve him only. And God is still in the business of turning the hearts of his people back to him. The psalmist cries out in Psalm 85 and verse 6, Will you not revive us again, O Lord, that your people might rejoice in you? And that needs to be a prayer of ours. Oh God, turn our hearts back to you. Whatever things we have set up in our lives that are taking the place of you, whatever we have amalgamated into our worship of you, God, take it out and turn our hearts back to you and to you alone. But we also learn this, and I also see this in this passage, that when heaven touches earth, it always means decision and conflict and change. It always means decision, conflict, and change. I mean, the conflict and stuff is really obvious in the passage, and the people have got to change their hearts, and they've got to change their minds. And as you read on in the story, there's a call, there's a call that is now made on the people of God to return to him with all of their hearts. The same type of thing is going to happen to us when God moves in his awesome power and when he starts putting his finger on a human heart individually, as he starts touching each one of us, and then, oh God, Lord willing, if he starts to move amongst us corporately in, in a powerful way, it's going to mean conflict and change and decisions. In Isaiah chapter 55, verses 6 and 7, it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found and call on him while he is near, implying that there's a time of God's visitation. So what are we to do? In that time, let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts and let them turn, let them return to God. And he will have mercy on them and to our God for he will freely pardon. Well, also, when heaven touches earth, broken altars need repair. The altar of the Lord was in ruins. And we don't have altars per se today. But remember, the altar was the prescribed way of connecting with God and the way of worshiping God. 
And I believe in our day, there are so many altars that need to be repaired. Prayer, personal and corporate. The worship of God. What I love about worship is I get to worship with all of you one day a week and I get to do my own worship service six times a week. But what's the altar of worship like in our lives? Honestly and really. Then also, when heaven touches touches earth, there's a renewed commitment to God. I love it in verse 39. Then the people fall prostrate and they cry, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. It's always going to require renewed commitment from us. Can I suggest to you, my friends and my brothers and sisters, and especially those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, that we need the fire of God to fall on us today. In our church, in our homes, in our land, we desperately need a fresh move of God and for the fire of God to fall on us and to change us. I close with this verse that has been used so often in times where God has moved. Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, however you pronounce it. Chapter 3 and verse 2. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Lord, we've, we've heard about Elijah on Mount Carmel. We've heard about all of the stuff in the Old Testament. We've heard about all the stuff in the New Testament that you do. God, we stand in awe of your fame, and we've heard of all of these incredible things that you have done. So what? We renew them in our day. And in our time, make them known. And in your wrath, in your fire, remember mercy. Let's pray together. Oh God, don't pass us by has been the prayer of so many people. And God, I echo that prayer this morning and I humbly ask, oh God, we've heard, we have heard who you are. God, we believe, maybe it's only intellectually, we believe who you are. I mean, we've just, we've just studied, God, what you did with Elijah on Mount Carmel. And this is not just some fable. This is not just some made-up story. This is something that really happened. We can go to the spot, and we can stand in that spot. But God, we don't want to go there. We want to have our experience of you and your glory and your power here in our own backyard, God. So God, would you do whatever it takes? Would you do whatever it takes, God? in our lives, for your glory, for our good, and so that people would know that you are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And we thank you and we praise you for that in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for joining us. For more teaching, info, or to give financially, please visit us at our website, crotherscreek.ca.